episode number 84 of the Rock and Roll Research Podcast, where we share the super cool backstories of the marketing and insights pros that you trust. I'm super excited to welcome Bob Blair to the podcast today. Now, Bob and I actually met, hey, Bob, uh, we actually met once in person way back in 2009, when a mutual friend called him and called me and said, guys, Motorhead's playing at the Chicago House of Blues, we got to go. We both said, yes, absolutely, we got to go. And so we spent this awesome night with Lemmy and company, uh, had a blast, uh, copious, copious amounts of alcohol, uh, but it was. <laughs> now, my memory, Matt, if, if I could interject here, was not only is meeting at a Motorhead concert kind of like an apocryphal or origin story as it should be, Indeed. but. As memory recalls, we went right from there to a dive bar on Western Avenue called the Mutiny and yeah. formed a band that never actually we manifested. We, so we were dead serious about it that night. I remember that. Oh, my God. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it was an absolutely epic night. It Let's was great. It was a fun one. It was a fun one. <laughs> Let's say that. So uh, one of the things uh, about Bob that really struck me immediately is I he has such a creative perspective on things. And uh, that's what made uh, the night really fun. Uh, but I also just kind of wanted to follow what he was doing. Like, where does this guy's career go from here? And uh, he continued to work in advertising and media for a lot of years with some of the coolest titles you could imagine, like managing director of invention, global chief experience officer at some of the biggest and best agencies in the world. Uh, which brought him to today, where he really is at uh, what I've long considered probably the most innovative and creative consumer goods company, Jones Soda. Uh, so more. I love Jones, yes. <laughs> it seemed like a match made in heaven, actually. Um, so Bob today is the chief marketing officer at Jones Soda, but also the chief brand officer for their expansion into cannabis with the brand Mary Jones Cabin Cannabis, which of course is an amazing name. It Thank is you. the right name. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, along the way, uh, you know, I've been following him on Facebook. I know he's he's had some re-energizing of his band days, something like that. Um, so I figured we needed to talk. So welcome, welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thank you, thank you, Matt. I love it, and thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into it. Let's let's start on the professional side. So uh, how did you get interested in marketing and advertising in the first place? What did your journey kind of look like? And tell us about what you're doing at Jones. Well, the, the, the true story of how I got into marketing, I, I think, is actually really kind of funny and serendipitous as these things go. And, and the true answer is I was in no way looking to get into marketing. It was not even sort of <laughs> on my mind. It was a zero. But I'll tell you what was on my mind was getting out of my current job. Um, I was I was touring as the touring sound engineer and tour manager for Urge Overkill, Nash Cato's. Oh, yes, that's right. Oh, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> it was an interesting era the of the band when he was solo. And yeah, we were okay. teetering back and forth with his solo record support and him grappling with the fact that the crowds wanted her urge song. So he would, you know, mix uh, it, match it. I think Blackie joined us for two gigs, you know, so it was one of those things, but 
we were doing the touring version of the band, which at the time is really funny because it, it featured a um, uh, Sean Mulroney was touring with us at that time, you know, yeah. um, and we had Nils playing guitar and um, and this uh, wonderful guy named Richard playing drums who are now still dear friends of mine. And so, you know, these touring days are all wonderful. But and, and I share this with the most absolute love. Nash Cato is a nightmare to tour with. Oh, <laughs> my God. And try being the tour manager who's in charge of getting him from point A to point B on time. I could fill an entire podcast with in this true story, Matt. We should start a podcast called Bob Stories from Touring with Nash. <laughs> nice. We could do a few seasons and I only went on one tour. Um <laughs> But anyway, as uh, is, is, is lovable as he is, I had lost it. I had just completely lost it. And I couldn't tour with them anymore. And we, uh, we got back to Chicago and, and I was not supposed to be done with the tour. In fact, we were just on a little break and we were supposed to get back out on the road almost immediately. And yeah. I paid myself out of the last concert's proceeds. I put all the receipts in a bag and I mailed them to the manager and I said, I'm done. I'm not leaving. Wow. I'm not, I'm not getting back on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I say all that to say it was, it was serendipitously 4th of July. And um, if you recall, this is all Chicago based legend stuff, but the guys from exit always put on this insane illegal fireworks show down like at Augusta and Rockwell or something. Yeah. And <clears throat> a bit of an annual tradition for all the rock and roll folks to go out and watch the illegal fireworks show and, so of course I did. And I was out there and I bumped into my very dear friend, Jamie Duffy, um, who, if anyone knows him, rest in peace, a very, very sorely missed gentleman from our music scene uh, who left us probably almost 10 years ago now. Um, but I bumped into him and uh, he's like, how are you doing? And I'm like, well, bit of a weird spot. I just quit my touring gig in a huff and I don't know what I'm going to do next. And he's like, Oh my God, I just quit my job in a huff too. <laughs> and I said, what? What were you doing? And he's like, well, it's sort of like music and touring, only I was doing it for Camel cigarettes and they have huge budgets and <clears throat> I had almost unlimited money to route these tours and do these things through clubs across the country. And, you know, I'm like, well, that sounds incredible. He goes, yeah, but there's a catch. You wouldn't believe it. And I go, what? Well, <clears throat> when you're not touring, you got to go to an office downtown Monday to Friday. <laughs> and I'm like, well, wait, that kind of sounds all right. Like a normal job. He goes, yeah, you get benefits. You get 401k. I'm like, wait, when did you quit, Jamie? When did you quit? And he goes, yesterday. And I, uh, I had him write down the name of his boss. I'd never even heard of his job. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. And I called his boss the next day. It turned out I was calling a very large uh, advertising agency. I had no idea. That yeah. person said, why are you calling me for a job? You're supposed to call HR and submit a resume. And I go, oh, <laughs> my bad. So I went, I did that. <laughs> a week or two later, I ended up in front of this guy interviewing and I ended up getting Jamie's old job. And that job was to be the technical director for the RJ Reynolds Camel Club program. Okay. And in hindsight, it makes total sense why they would hire people from the rock and roll touring industry and stuff, because yeah. you're setting up lights and you're setting up branding elements and whatever. But yeah. that's that was my foothold <clears throat> into 
what later became a whole career in marketing because I was working at an agency. And I, um, I slowly went from being a technical director to running these programs, to pitching these programs, and then landing new accounts to do this type of work. And then, you know, once you get to a certain status at one agency, my biggest recommendation for anybody's career, leave, because then the next place that hires you brings you in at a higher and more senior level. And you go, and I, I did, I bounced a lot. And, you know, I switched jobs right. every couple of years for a while. Um, but it really was all because of serendipity and bumping into my friend, Jamie, and both of us hating our jobs that we were in because of something and just really just swapping numbers. And I think, uh, I've, I've, I've only looked for a job one or two times in my life and I didn't find one. The only jobs I've ever, ever had, and I could go through every single one of them. Somebody came knocking that I wasn't expecting to hear from. And I just almost always say yes, if it's interesting, and yeah. that's been, it's been every, every step of the way. Wow. What a fascinating story. And I, I remember back when, uh, when I was playing in a rockabilly band in Minneapolis back in the day, uh, they would always have the, the camel cigarettes representatives there, uh, on premise. Carrying so. a backpack, handing out smokes. That was my people. <laughs> I think awesome. in Minneapolis, we were probably all over the seventh street entry and first half and the globe and my favorite club, the gay nineties. Yes, absolutely. I love the gay nineties. Oh my god! I have a, I have a, uh, a familial connection to the gay nineties. We can talk about that at some point. So. I have legendary <laughs> stories from the men's room, the club you can only access from the men's bathroom of the dance club. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. All right. Okay. Cool. So, so tell us about how you got to Jones Soda, and you know, kind of your big vision for what that's all about. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the the last role I had before this had me uh, running global capabilities at an agency called Publicis that has 10,000 employees and <clears throat> 167 uh, offices around the world. And, you know, it, it was neat at times. And I really, I'm not going to pretend I didn't enjoy bouncing around to like some global destination or some fancy, you know, conference or something. But in between those times, it, it felt unwieldy. Um, you're, you're talking at large groups of people. You don't talk with somebody. Your clients are a lot of them, and they're very senior, and you see them one or three times a year. And uh, I was definitely missing the tangibility of, of, of work I'd done years ago, where I felt like I was making more of an impact. And I was talking with the people who were doing the work directly. And I just saw saw the, the results of it. Like I, I often would see myself at the front end of a project and never even hear about it again, you know? Right. Um, and so I think when you're starting to feel a certain way, you put your radar into the world through yeah. all sorts of cues, right? And I, I think I had maybe put those energies out there that it was time. And, and my job was very clearly a global job and the pandemic happened. And um, I was doing my job 100% over Zoom to a global constituency. And it was just the most soul losing experience, you know, having calls at weird time zones to people who are mostly having their cameras off. Yeah. And, and it, it, it had accidentally turned into the worst version of the job when the pandemic yeah. happened because all the good parts right. went away. Right. So I was really kind of just kind of like putting the radar out that I was I was maybe, you know, looking for whatever the next thing might be. And luckily for me, one of my uh, 
favorite clients that I had worked with for for years in different jobs, a guy by the name of Clive Serkin. Um, he was CMO of Kellogg's. He was CMO of Kimberly Clark. And, and when I would work with those brands, he was my main client counterpart. And right. so I knew him very well and, and really, you know, luckily maintained a relationship with him. He's on the board of directors at Jones. And, and I, I didn't know or whatever that anything was looking, but he and I were just having coffees and he would be like, oh, here's what I'm thinking about. And I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Here's what I'm thinking about. And we would talk about Jones just because he's on the board, you know? Right. And, um, and little did I know that he was soft interviewing me for their first CMO role because they didn't have one. And um, the reason they were creating the role of a CMO was because this legendary 25-year soda brand had raised funding to go into cannabis, but hadn't quite figured it out past that. It was like, we're a cool soda brand. We raised $8 million to go penetrate a new category, but we've been talking about it now for four months and nothing's happened. And, um, and so the, it was very clear that the reason they did it that way was the only reason that cannabis exists for Jones is an extension of the brand, an extension of the equity, extension of everything. So you need the person that's going to do that to have some sort of like, you know, feet in both parts of that world and to own that brand relationship to take it into another category. And so CMO of this uh, soda brand with the remit to successfully take it into cannabis. And I, I I had a fainting spell, Matt. Um, (laughs) I was like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. (laughs) I can go from a global job that feels unwieldy to working on this very specific legendary craft soda brand with a very small but dedicated, passionate team. And I get to go make something where the making of it is so real and so tangible. And like you get to hold it in your hand and you get to drink it at the end. It couldn't have checked more boxes for me. I also love weed, Matt. I love weed. (laughs) I've been a big time weed user for like all the way back since uh, college. And so like, um, for me, like it just brought together a lot of things I'm passionate about and a lot of things that are fun. And it gave me that sense of, of, of getting my hands on the work that I was so missing. And uh, right as the pandemic came to a close, you know, I don't mind traveling globally, but I, I didn't love those long flights. And now here I am working domestically. I, I work for a company where I go back and forth to Seattle. I go back and forth to California. And so just my life is better. I have a four-year-old alongside my uh, teenagers and I get to be home all the time now. And um, anyway, yeah. it's, just, it's really brought together what I'm looking for in career and lifestyle into one place. And awesome. the people are amazing and it's just great. It's great. Cool. I, I have one question about that because if I think about Jones, it's uh, iconoclastic, right? And it's got it. You join the company where it already has a point of view. So yes. how do you balance that coming in as a CMO, especially with a with a brand extension? How much of it is sort of leveraging what? Oh my God, that's exactly the right question, man. I'm going to get a prop here. Um, just to show you some stuff. Let me see what I got here. Um, so I would be insane to come into Jones and yeah. change any change anything that was part of the brand, right? So when you have Jones, people will be like, the, the, the best part is for a small soda brand, one in 10 households have bought Jones in the last year in the US and Canada. And 60% of people know who we are without any help. That's incredible. Yeah. That's that's numbers that beat Airbnb. That's numbers that beat my previous clients. You know, it's insane. So this brand is so well known. 
And when people say what they know about it, they go, Jones, okay. Brand that puts photos on the label, literally in the one or two first things that they say about the brand. And, yep. um, and then they go into our flavors and they'll have like a favorite flavor or they'll remember a crazy flavor or something. Right. Right. So when I came in, there was no way I was going to mess with that, that recipe. Right. So the first thing I did is I looked and I, uh, I, I wanted to go a little bit more following the sword over it. You know, if anything, the brand had gotten a little soft in their rule book and, and wasn't falling on the sword over the notion of photos, flavors, black and white with color, you know, so we kind of retrenched a little bit and just said, no, who are we? And we yeah. are very strict about that. Then what I did is I thought, well, I can look at the marketing ecosystem and make sure that it's functioning as good as it can, because I don't want to change anything. So right, right now, we, um, we, this bottle is part of our old line, where we switched to augmented reality labels right before I started. And that's really cool. So some labels come yeah. to life and play video. But it was doing it through an app, which is now old fashioned and passe. Um, so when I came in, we rebooted it and we're about to launch our mobile AR version of that same experience. So it's seamless, cool. frictionless, requires no download and has given an administrative tool to my team so that they can upload videos and match them to labels on their own, which then makes the management cost of the ecosystem of augmented reality labels cheaper to run. So yeah. as a CMO, I thought my job isn't to change labels or augmented reality; it's to make that system easier to use for the team and cheaper. Right. So yeah. That's you know. So that's Love an example. Um, we you know we put a, ca a quote under the every lid, and everyone knows that. I just was on the phone last night with a woman in Canada who called the consumer hotline and uh, left us a voicemail, and I called her back, and I heard the most heartwarming gorgeous story about a family tradition around caps under the lid. And it just yeah. reminds you, this is a brand that matters to people. This is a brand people care about. So, totally. so then you come in and you go, Oh, I'm, I'm launching a cannabis brand, right? What is the right way to leverage those equities and those attributes, but not mess anything up. Right. right. Um, we are the first mainstream CPG brand to go into cannabis. That is not an alcohol brand, which means right. we're the first CPG brand that has an all uh, an all ages audience on one side of the fence and uh, an adult audience on the other. So right. as we launched uh, this, coming up with the name of the brand and all that was part of what had to happen. There was nothing, right? So yeah. uh, Mary Jones is one of those names that once you come up with it, you're like, well, obviously I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. you know, um, how can you not? But it was very choiceful to say, what are, yeah. the, what are the minimum things we change about this brand? So yep. the consumer definitely knows which one they're getting, but they definitely know which brand it's coming from. Right. So yeah. we still do the photos on the label. We turn the N around on the Jones and we tagged it with Mary. Yeah. We think we got the same fun tops, but they're different. This one's yeah. twist off. This one's child resistant. Cool. And this is only sold in legally licensed dispensaries. This is sold in every Kroger in the U.S., you know? Yeah. And then as we thought about going, and this is a 10 milligram single dose. Then as we take the brand into a higher multi-dose format, we go into a tall boy, we go hundred milligrams. Yeah. Then we take the brand into a syrup and you can do a mixing and cocktail mocktail. Oh, relationship. Cool. <laughs> this is a locked flavor system. This is the exact same flavor profile as mainline Jones. The flavor scientist of Jones, Sarah, is the one who formulates all the Mary Jones products. And right. so, um, and I got one more for you. 
Mainline Jones sells these very popular in Canada, carbonated candies. Oh, cool. Yeah. And we're about to launch our infused version of these in California in a, in a couple months. And again, same flavor profile. Yeah. So we have a flavor driven portfolio that cuts across cannabis uh, recreational edible formats. And we're, you know, just kind of broadening and broadening and broadening our stance. And we're yeah. going anywhere the flavor takes us. So, you know, it's been really interesting, you know, kind of, it's a different mindset. It's still creative. It's still marketing, but it's not that marketing of what's our TV ad. It's that marketing of what's our flavor strategy, what's our format strategy, you know, yeah. and it's just, it's completely energizing, really. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what an exciting thing to be just, uh, not just on the cusp of something, but actually, creating it right shaping yeah. it you're well you're creating a brand but also while cannabis recreational cannabis feels like it's been around for a while it hasn't you know it's really new in most markets yeah and then most of that business is still buying leaf product and pre-rolls and things like right. that cannabis beverage is only three percent of the category today oh interesting so, yeah. so we're really in a high momentum high growth Growing thirty yeah. percent year over year, the whole thing's the wild west <laughs> environment. Yeah. Where you got to build it to run it, you know. So it's really yeah. fun, really fun. Yeah, and I know that the data, for example, that you have uh, at your disposal to measure your progress is very different. Very um, different. But yeah. um, I was on the I was on the phone with a with somebody that that you know is in the industry, uh, but also worked in mainline and data. And they were reminding me that while the data seems newer and less accessible and blah, 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 the reality is it's more um, higher resolution than most of the data you would get in classic CPG marketing. And I'm like, wait, why, what? And he goes, because almost no transaction in cannabis doesn't happen through a dedicated point of sale system that's tied into one of the major things. And you're like, wait, you're right. right. They yeah. all use tablets. Even if you're at the store, you're tableting it. And they can't use the classic credit card systems where you lose some of the resolution of data. Right. You're doing it either debit card or Venmo or, and the reality is, and I'm going to give a shout out to a company because um, they gave me access to their data for a little while to, to demo the platform. But there's this company called Headset that has um, done a very good job of amassing the retail data. And um, right now I have access to that dashboard. And it's been really interesting for me comparing. All right. So we used to win awards for the retail data that we built for, um, for uh, Kraft Heinz over at my last job. Okay. And the reason everybody was so impressed with us for winning awards was that we could figure out within like three weeks, a pretty accurate view of what was happening at the retail level, despite the fact that retailers don't report it. And everyone be like, oh, you can only tie into coupons, but people use coupons aren't the people we want to follow, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. It was always a mess. And it was like, oh my God, these people are amazing because they figured out how to get a view of that for a major CPG brand who spends zillions of dollars. Right. Right. Um, I can go in right now and I can get within a 90 something percent accuracy, a direct view of everything that was bought me and my competitive set in any state in the U S as of yesterday. That's amazing. Wow. You know, and there's very <laughs> few transactions that would miss that lens 
because right. there's nobody paying in cash and there's nobody paying in like most orders are done on a kiosk before you walk up to the counter. Right. Yeah. Tied to a loyalty number in most cases. It's the most attributed data set I've ever been around. Yeah. And so, so anyway, it's very interesting the, 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 where something that starts late enters the market sophisticated. You're not up to some antiquated system. They started this way, you know, and anyway, I find it very, very interesting. Um, We're spending so little money in paid marketing now because, you know, we're a new business and there's not that many opportunities out there that those those insights and, and that data is being used to drive business decisions and portfolio strategy. And, you know, what's our next flavor going to be? If we have these six flavors to pick from, from the Jones archive, which one's the one that will make the most difference. And so we're using the data yeah. in those ways. Cool. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, I guess, you know, they take uh, with a new industry like that, they take advantage of all of the progress that's been made. Yeah, yeah you're just starting right at whatever the most modern thing is. Why wouldn't you? Start you know? selling third base, as, as they say. Um, yeah. So, uh, so with that, I, one of the reasons why I was really excited to have you on the podcast is it's really fun and insightful to have people who are uh, what I would call like research adjacent. You know, working <laughs> in marketing and working in advertising, comment on you know what the uh, what's important in insights and what the future looks like. And so given, you know, your uh, unusual path, I guess, through through this whole space, I'd love to know sort of from your perspective what you see as important or the future of, of research. Uh, I think what's important and what the future of research are are two polar opposite things, and that's because people aren't trustworthy. But uh, I'll answer both yeah. questions. Um, What's important about research is to use objective information to make the right decision. Mm-hmm. The future of research is to cover your ass with research so you're not accused of making the wrong decision or, <laughs> or, or to validate the decision you wanted to make. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and the more I've been in situations where the, uh, the data is readily available and readily funded. And there's people who are smart that can go get that answer for you. Mm-hmm. I have zero problem validating almost any hypothesis through very objective seeming data. And that's because data sets are biased, questions are biased, queries are biased, everything is biased. And if you want a chart that goes this way and shows that you're gonna make money doing that, yeah, sure. It's just about how you craft it, right? And right. people who are really good at it are really good at it. And so I think the future of data is validating things. And the future of data is getting paid to validate things by the people who want to spend the money. And that is typically biased. And I think uh, biased data to support findings that need to get funding is 100% where the entire thing's going. Um, yeah. So the opposite of that is what's important. And it's what I've been trying to figure out is how to get the honest view, right? Like, like how do I really, really know? And, um, you know, cannabis has been interesting because it's a microcosm of other industries. Uh, It just feels smaller and like you can get your head around it, you know? Mm -hmm. And almost every partner I've met with, and I love them all, and the ones that are even doing great business with me today, all of them sold me a bill of goods at the front end of our relationship. Every single one of them, right? You know, because we're all high on the supply of the promise of cannabis and there's gold in them, their hills, you know? And so (laughs) so almost like holding hands with somebody and jumping into a business relationship with them almost requires you both being like, we're going to make millions. 
just the same the same way every band I've ever been in started with we're gonna be huge you know and if you don't believe that then don't start the band right and if you don't believe it, don't go into cannabis beverage but um the front end of the relationships have been pumping up the opportunity and and what I really found very important as I land the plane is to ground the opportunity. And, and, you know, we're a publicly traded company. I have to report numbers to a board of directors. I have to report numbers to the street and earnings call. You know, I can't sell like, you know, too much of that pipe dream. Quite literally in this case, that's not even a metaphor. Um, um, but anyway, uh, that it's been really interesting for me as someone who now loves the idea and the promise and the brand and marketing of cannabis that also owns the PL to yeah. say, I got to make it a successful ROI driving business. And so like, how do I not base all of my thinking on whims, whimsy and dreams and, and really ground it? And so it's been, I don't know, it's a long winded answer to your question, but. No, no, I think it's really important. I think, uh, you know, a lot of insights professionals uh, have heard kind of that cynicism and it's, but it's a, it's a wake up call, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. a constant challenge for us to actually produce truth uh, rather than, uh, you know, whatever that biased view is. I'll tell you, if I was a research company right now and I had a client, I would give them two answers to every question and I would label them. Here's yeah. the question. Here's the answer to your question that makes you look great. And here's the one you need to hear. Yeah. Yep. And you use these how you wish. And then they would go, <laughs> oh, man, you're really good at this and data is really biased, isn't it? And you go, yeah, it really is. Isn't it a joke? <laughs> you know, uh... Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Okay, so so uh, I know that this this whole started for you with with music, right? Um, obviously, there's a passion for it that brought you on tour, uh, wanted to be around it, uh, but you didn't completely let go of that. So I'm curious to know how that's kind of uh, continued to manifest in your life. Well, I you know, plug plug plug. I have my band, Bicycle Tricycle, and. Um, uh, it's it's a labor of love. Um, the older I get, the more it turns into a recording passion project and a playing out passion project. Um, although recently I found a group of like-minded dads and we get together almost every Tuesday night in a in a, a rehearsal space up north and just rock out. If you, wrote, <laughs> if you wrote a song, the other guys will learn it. If you wanted to like play a Pixie song as loud as possible and sing it at your freaking full blast everyone's good enough to learn it real quick and play it. And it's just, it. we've been having a really good time. So music, whether it's just for fun or recording and being incredibly pretentious and ridiculous with my output <laughs> as bicycle tricycle, I take all that really seriously, but thankfully I don't depend on it for my uh, livelihood because right. it, whoa, you know, like um, <laughs> that part never happened for me. And, and <laughs> You know, I think now that I have uh, some more perspective and I've watched some of my friends who are incredibly talented, have different levels of careers in music. Um, I think if anyone uh, was planning on sticking with music, one of the critical parts is sticking with music. You can't be in halfway, you know, yeah, yeah. if you ever feel like in your heart, like I'm going to give it a little try, but if it doesn't work out, I'm going to go into marketing and you're going into marketing, <laughs> you know, Um you have to like total hundred billion percent be in. And then of that group of people, some people end up having great careers out of it. You know, um, yeah. I think having a career that gave me permission to treat my music as the artistic hobby that it is, has yeah. allowed me to really let it be something really personal. Um, yeah. I care deeply about the records I put out. I 
play way too many instruments on them. And then I convinced my more talented friends than me to come over and play on them. And <laughs> I, I, I'm graced by performances on my record that nobody would be able to afford to have if they weren't just doing me favors. You know, like these are <laughs> really, my records have, you know, Solomon Snyder and Matt Walker from the cupcakes on them and Max Crawford from Poy Dog Pondering and um, my friends Jason and Nils and, you know, are the cream of the crop of the Chicago scene and John San Juan and they, they come by this little shitty room in my house and they plug in and they play on my records and it's just it really, wow. you know, it means a lot to me um, because I get to put something out I'm really proud of, you know, and I, yeah. I, you know, it doesn't matter how many people listen to it, super proud of it. And so that's been really fun. Um, so I still, that's what, you know, that's what music is for me today is a passion project, but a super yep. passion, passion project. I, I identify with every word you said there. That's, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, all right. So with, with a career that, uh, that has intersected media quite a bit, uh, over the last several years, curious to know for you personally, uh, what media you turn to either for inspiration or insight or enjoyment. What do you um, <laughs> I've become, uh, well, first of all, I'm a stereotype, I guess, because I become one of these podcast people where I, um, I mostly listen to podcasts compared to probably any other entertainment format. Uh, I, when I, got those podcast, people. <laughs> what? I love those people. I know it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of an awesome format. And you know, when I got my Spotify year in review, it's like almost no music in it. And I'm like, oh my God. I will tell you how bad it got for me. A new album comes out that I heard is good, right? A musical album. I will listen to the dissect podcast that goes through the album and talks yeah. about all the new ones. I listen to the like the deep dive on the weekends, you know, uh, whatever that, you know, radio station album was. I listened to the deep dive on it, which was like three hours before yeah. I went and then listened to the record because then I could like enjoy the record more because I knew all the, like the, the, the yeah. fact ways that sat behind it. So anyway, I'm a total sucker for that. And my favorite one, and I just sit on the edge of my seat waiting for the next episode to come out is the history of music in 500 songs. Have you, have you encountered oh, that? Podcast? No, I'm not familiar with that. It, 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 it's shocking because there was a book written called the history of music in 500 songs. And this podcast uh -huh. takes each page of that book and makes it into a two plus hour podcast that does a very deep history. And there's going yeah. to be 500 episodes of the podcast when it's done. And he's up wow. to episode like 167 now or something. It's incredible. It's incredibly cool. researched, incredibly nuanced. And so for me, every time I plug in a podcast, it's this weird mix of, um, of, of entertainment and education. And so either I'm learning about a period of time I wished I knew more about, like a music documentary, or I'll listen to like, I, I, I do the Huberman lab podcast where it's a neuroscientist from Stanford. You yeah. know, I, I feel like maybe I'm deluding myself, but when I picked the right podcast, I feel like I didn't waste time entertaining myself. Like I had yeah. some weird, it sounds dumb to say, but some personal improvement came out of it or some better <laughs> understanding. Or I, I really got into that rhinestones, uh, cocaine and rhinestones podcast by the Disgraceland guy. Yeah. Because like, yeah, I know all the rock stories, but I don't think I knew all the country music stories, you know? And so yeah. they're really similar. <laughs> bring it on. You know, I love this. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's my chosen. If I'm listening, that's what I'm listening to. Awesome. Cool. All right. All right. Well, this is a question I really want to know, because I know we, we share a, a mutual appreciation for Motorhead. Uh, and <laughs> who doesn't, <laughs> who doesn't? I mean, it's, it's almost, I mean, it cuts across everything, right? 
Um, but this is what I really want to know. So deep down in your heart, right? So you're, you're stranded on a desert island. Maybe you have some Mary Jones soda, uh, perhaps okay. unlimited, unlimited supply, right? Um, <laughs> but you also have three records uh, of, of your choosing to keep you company for the rest of your days. What are they, Bob? I think I'm not going to pretend I didn't see this question coming and, and think about it, but <laughs> I... I think the issue with choosing a, a finite group of something is the minute you choose them, you're going to be plagued by what you did not choose, right? Like I've been plagued with that for years. I remember conversations I had with people ten years ago where I gave them an answer, and now I'm like, I got to call think, them, tell them. <laughs> I think the real trick to it is, is is to somehow play some judo on that and say, how how do I get something that feels finite? without feeling like there's an edge to it that, that that I missed out on or something. And so I feel like personally, that wouldn't be very hard for me. Although yeah. I, I might have to burst the edge and get a fourth album in there, but it would be to take the, um, the four album arc from Brian Eno of his rock albums from, you know, uh, the, uh, here come the warm jets taking tiger mountain by strategy before and after science, another green world. Yeah. And, and because what right before that was Roxy music and what was right after that was his yeah. ambient career, you, you don't feel like there's any edges and, and you can just say, right. and if there's somebody who I'd be willing to mind meld with over time, I think Brian Eno, okay, let's go, let's go yeah. brother. You know, I feel like he, there's enough depth and atmosphere that I could, every time I listen to it, find something new to latch on to. And yeah. I don't feel like I would be focused on what I was missing out on. Got it. Got it. So, so is that, is that your three right there? Or is that well, it's four and I would have to figure out. And I think if I was forced to, I would kick out before and after science, but I would be very upset about it. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Excellent answer. It's surprisingly the first Brian Eno uh, response. What? I question every Oh, he's podcast. my favorite. I'm actually shocked. So, uh, you got three in one, though. It's like three Brian Eno mentions. So there you go. You're doing your part. <laughs> All right, Bob. Uh, this has been just an awesome chat. Super glad we reconnected. And yes. hey, if I still live in Chicago, right, we would have that legendary band that we had we planned. Would. We'd, be, we'd be huge. <laughs> we would be huge. We wouldn't be working in research. And I wouldn't even be doing this right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob. Thanks so much. Uh, great fun. Keep in touch. And rock and roll. Yeah. Rock and roll. We'll